13 years ago, this fall, the Bontragers first and then the Hanafis a couple months later moved to Detroit, not knowing really anybody to start Restore Church. And did you know that 11 years ago today, we launched our first regular worship service? God is faithful. We've had ups and downs and downs and ups, but the church continues to move forward on the heels of Jesus' unstoppable promise. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I give God praise for that. The Did God Really Say conference is going to be two Friday nights from this last Friday and then Saturday. We're about at 175 registered. Uh, we are actually sending out a big uh, advertising thing, 72,000 emails on a radio station's email list this coming Monday. I'm telling you that because uh, there's only about 75 more free copies of the book that we're handing out after that. People can still come, but they don't get the book. And I, I just, apart from the book, I think it's so important for you to make it to this conference. And this, if the finances is an issue, let me know and, and we can take care of that. All right? Well, let's take our Bibles, your Bible app, whatever you have, and open up to Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read verses 10 through 12. 10 through 12, Isaiah 53. If you'd stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 through 12. The text of sacred scripture reads as follows. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So reads the words of the living God. Father, I am so unworthy to preach your word. But I thank you that you use broken vessels to display your glory. And so Lord, I, I freshly submit myself to you, asking you to glorify yourself through the lifting up of your son. I ask, Lord, that the spirit of God would open up our hearts so that we might receive all that you have for us. Lord, I pray that there would not be a person in here who is untouched by the truth of Christ crucified and Christ risen. And I pray this in his name. Amen. All right, you may grab a seat. 
from China to Chicago, from the DR to Detroit, from Ireland to India, from Kenya to Kansas, from Mexico to Mississippi, from Nairobi to New Orleans, from Vietnam to Virginia Beach. I could go on and on and on and on in tons of different languages, in tons of different styles, in tons of different venues from structures that don't even have walls with dirt floors to fancy buildings to warehouses to post office, offices like this, in tons of different numbers from a handful of believers to thousands gathered right now across the world and for the next 24 hours, Jesus Christ is being worshipped. But not just on Easter Sunday, Lord's Day, but on every Lord's Day. And so the question I ask is, why is that? And I suppose we could tick off a number of very valid reasons, but I submit to you there is one ultimate and primary reason people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue in heaven and on earth right now are worshiping the King of Kings, and that is because he is alive. He's risen. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's why for 2,000 years, based on Luke 24, 34, Christians have greeted another with these words. They greet one another with these words. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, as much as the world tries to deny the reality of Christ, their calendars betray them. We tell time by the birth of Christ. B.C., before Christ, right? A.D., Anno Domini, Latin for the year of the Lord. And even secular universities that have no interest in helping people savingly believe in Jesus dedicate classes, if not sometimes whole departments, on teaching about Christ and Christianity. Of course, usually trying to sow seeds of doubt under the guise of scholarship and historicity and objectivity, but, but they do teach classes on that. Well, speaking on the historicity of Christianity, did you know that there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is evidence that Julius Caesar ever existed? You don't doubt that, though, do you? More evidence than Alexander the Great died at age 33, there's more information about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christian apologist William Craig Lane said this. He said, the fact that the church was birthed and flourished in the very city Jesus Christ was executed is itself proof of the historicity of the resurrection. You think about that. There is evidence out there, my friend, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you want it, you can find it. I could give you a few tips real quickly. You could go to 1 Corinthians 15. And in that book of the New Testament, which we have tons of manuscript copies going back from not many years after it happened, 
you will find a whole list of witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of them even by their names. In other words, they could have tracked it down and said, yo, did this really go down? Or I could bring this to, to the defense stand. I could say, why would to a man the apostolic company foment a lie when the only perk benefits, if it was just a lie, was mistreatment, abuse, persecution, and ultimately torture and their own execution. Why? Oh, there is plenty of evidence for the, Jesus, for the resurrection of Christ. Just one last piece. You could, you could survey the untold millions of changed lives through every decade, through every century, for two millennia of people who have encountered the crucified, resurrected, ruling, reigning, and returning Jesus Christ. It's why we're gathered here this morning. Well, my aim this morning, however, is not to make an apologetic or a defense of the resurrection. Rather, my aim is simply to proclaim the resurrection because it's through the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth in which God saved those who will be saved and strengthens those of us who already are. And I say that on the basis of Jesus' words to an angry, critical, rejecting religious audience in John chapter 6. This is what he said to them. He said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And now he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Then verse 40, and this is the will of the Father. Remember the word will. Say the word will with me because we're going to come back to that. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I, he says, will raise him up on the last day. And then he says this in John 10, 16, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So my question is, as you hear the word of God, do you just hear some guy talking about religious stuff, or do you hear the voice of the living God through his written word? My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. We are in the third and final message in our brief Easter series called Love Songs, The Love of God and the Suffering Servant. So one last time, we're going to dive into Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, and we're going to look at the servant's resurrection. Now, for the sake of those who, who, who are new here to this series, let me just tell you that the book of Isaiah, I just read from it, was written not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, 700 years before Christ came down from heaven, was birthed as a human. This was written. And thus, in the Old Testament, you will not find a plainer prediction and clearer description of the suffering of glory and glory of Christ than what you find in the book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 53. Now, what word did I just say? Will. Drop your eyes on verse 10 of Isaiah 53 and look at the two times the word will appears. You might want to circle that. Will number one, yet it was the will, you see that, of the Lord to crush him. Will number two, bottom of the verse, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. 
On those two wills, I'm going to build out the two main points on the sermon from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant's resurrection. So here's where we begin. Y'all with me? God's will prevailed in the, in, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. God's will prevailed in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You might be saying, wait, 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 we kind of hit that last week? And today you said the title was The Servant's Resurrection, so why are you starting here? Well, the reason I'm starting here is you really can't talk about the, crucif- the, the, the resurrection without talking about what? The crucifixion. And you really can't talk about the crucifixion without talking about the, which is why I mentioned the resurrection last week. In other words, the two are inseparably linked in history. Going back to these secular universities that do classes on Christ and Christianity, they'll say, well, his birth, that's historical, but his resurrection, well, that's theological. That's a bunch of bunk. They're both theological and historical. Romans 5.5 connects the two. He was delivered for our offenses, and he was raised again for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15. I mentioned 1 Corinthians. Did I not? 15. Paul says, for I delivered unto you that which is of first importance, how that Christ died for our sins, according to what? According to the newspaper? According to the scripture, including this scripture 700 years before he came. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So we hold these truths together because they are inseparably linked. And even this verse itself, as we will see, connects the crucifixion with the resurrection. I now very quickly summarize what we covered last few weeks, like in a matter of minutes. We saw in the last two weeks that Jesus Christ was so barbarically treated, so horrifically brutalized, that he barely looked like a man. We saw that in the beginning of the servant song. Then we saw how he was crucified And Brother Tom did such a great job in the Good Friday service to talk a little bit about what crucifixion entailed. Absolutely horrific. Designed to maximize pain. And we saw all of that was because of a colossal miscarriage of injustice, right? How many bad, false, fake mock trials were there? Six. Three before the Jewish authorities, three before the Roman authorities. Not to mention... The, je- the, the greed of Judas that led to this, selling him for some money, right? Not to mention the jealousy of Caiaphas. And not to mention the fear of man of Pilate. All of that conspired for this massive display of injustice. But you know what? While that is true, It was all according to God's plan. The Lord didn't wake up that Saturday morning and stumble to the front door and read the headlines and say, and saw, oh, my son was crucified. What am I going to do? Oh, myself, what am I going to do? No, apostolic preaching, meaning the early church recorded in the book of Acts in the New Testament, said that Jesus Christ was delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 
the early church held on to that. They have a prayer meeting. And they, they say, surely there was gathered in Jerusalem against your holy servant, Jesus, Pilate, Herod, and all the other Gentiles to do, he says, here's the words, whatever your hand and your plan predestined to occur. And so, as I said from that little devotional book last Sunday, among all the hands striking Jesus, and there was a lot of wicked hands striking him, there was one holy hand high above all, the hand of the Father which is exactly now what verse 10 is saying. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, you might be here and saying, asking yourself, why? Why is the father crushing his son? Here's a reason it did not happen. It wasn't because the son sinned. I invite you to read through the Gospels. The testimony is he was yet without sin. Sinless son of God. And it wasn't because the son was sort of pushed over, if you will, metaphorically speaking, uh, the porch of heaven to come down here against his will. Because Jesus said, my meat is to do my father's will. It says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So those aren't the reasons. I want to make this as plain as I can. Kind of a two-part to this answer, why then did the Father crush the Son? Here's the first part. God is holy. Say holy with me. God is holy. And we are what? Sinful. God's holy, sinful. Oil and water. And yet, we're a little bit like the Pharisee in the temple. Remember, the, Jesus told the story, the two people went up to, to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee says, he starts flexing spiritually. He says, I thank you, Father, that I'm not like these other chumps are. And he lists off all their sins. And then he boasts about what he does. We're a little bit like that Pharisee. We fancy ourselves pretty good. In comparison to others, right? But I just got to tell you, I got to tell you, comparing ourselves to the sin of others is never a good gauge for our, our state of holiness. Because the question that matters, my friends, is not how we stack up with others. That's what religion does, dead religion. The question that really will matter when you stand before the living God is how do you stack up to him? And these, this beautiful group of kids gave us the Ten Commandments, right? And the Ten Commandments are designed to show us how we ought to live, but also to show us what we really look like, what our hearts really are. That's what they do. That's what the Ten Commandments do. We're like a kid. This is a... Uh, <laughs> A somewhat made up, somewhat factual illustration. Like a kid, I don't know, let's call him a middle schooler, who is so pumped because he's going to Cedar Point. And he can't wait. What's that one uh, uh, roller coaster goes straight up and you can literally see it sway in the wind way up top? What is that one called? What is it called? Yeah, yes. And he says to his friends, oh, 
this is no big deal. And they're all saying, this is scary. You, can't, you see that thing sway? You see how high it goes, how fast, how quick you go down, all that? Oh, no, no, no. Been there, done that, no problem. You watch me get on this ride. Little does that little punk know that about every 200 yards on the roller coaster, there's a camera taking your picture, <laughs> right? And when you walk out of the exit, they have a screen and they show your face. We always do. We try and take a picture because of it with our cell phones because it's so expensive to buy those, right? And when he gets out, his friends are laughing because he's like, oh, yeah, tell me you were Mr. Brave. Look at your face all twisted and contorted in fear and horror and all the rest. It showed what he was really like, those cameras, right? Well, just as the cameras on the roller coaster showed him what he really looked like, the law of God and the roller coaster of life and the ups and downs show us not just what we look like, but we actually are like. Take the first commandment. Where do you run to when you need relief? Where do you find your identity? Where do you look? Who do you listen to? What or who is your life built around? The Bible says anytime that's not the living God, you are an idolater just like me. You've broken the first commandment. Do you think of God on your own terms rather than what the scripture describes him to be? Oh, I'm not like those primitive people over in this country or their country. I can't believe they worship gods made with their hands. Baby, you might be worshiping gods made with your head. Making up a God that's not according to the truth of the living God of the Bible. Do you just fire off GDs or, oh, God, not thinking about God? Worse yet, I think, do you claim to represent Christ? Have you professed Christ and yet you live just like the world? That's taking, that's burying his name in vain. That's misusing his name, not repping him. Do you prioritize the worship of the living God? There are all kinds of things get in the way of gathering with his people. Because the fourth commandment says to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We meet now on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. Do you honor your mother and your father? That's the, the, the first four commandments are God word, right? The next six are man word. He starts with the authority structure of the family unit, which is under attack. Honor your father and mother. Do you dishonor them or do you honor them? The sixth commandment says you shall not commit murder. We've all had hatred in our heart, and Jesus said that's actually murder because that's where murder starts. The seventh commandment talks about marital faithfulness and, by extension, sexual faithfulness outside of the marriage, which means you're celibate until you're married. How are you doing with that one? And the pornography and all the stuff that goes with that. Eighth commandment, not to steal. Hmm, you know, just, my company's so big, it's not that big a deal. The ninth commandment, you're not to bear false witness. Well, it's just a white lie. Emphasize the word lie, okay? And the tenth commandment, don't covet. Now, when we get in the, because sometimes we hit those real good, right? But not when we're way down that roller coaster, and it shows us what we're really like. So God is what? Holy, and we are, but here's the other truth. God is righteous. God is just, which means he has to righteously do the just thing. Everyone talks about justice. Listen, 
Justice before God is getting what we deserve. Do you know that? If he is a just God, then he must be just, and therefore he must deal with our sin. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. means your paycheck, what you earn for sin, is death. Not just physical death, but potentially eternal separation from God. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul that sins, it will die. And I gave the illustration of Colin Smith. He talked about a fender bender. If you ever been in a fender bender, you know that there's damage and costs that have to be addressed, right? When you get, you know, you get hit in the city sometimes where I live, sometimes somebody doesn't have insurance. Like, oh, I hope they have insurance, right? Or then when the insurance companies talk, there's wrestling about who's going to cover what. Why? Because there's damage and cost that must be addressed. You say, well, sometimes I just let the fender bender go. Well, yeah, I have some cars like that too. But God is God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God will not allow the damage and cost of sin to go undealt with. Because then God would stop being God. And last I heard, God will not stop being God. The wages of sin is death. Now, this brings us to the good news. God's holy. We're sinful. God must deal with our sin. The good news is Jesus Christ died in our place to cover the damage and the cost of sin. I can't really fully fathom what that meant for him. These seven dear brothers up here Friday night helped me go a little bit further in understanding the depth of that, how horrific it was. Do you realize that Jesus Christ sweat great drops of blood? This is an actual physical condition. I've, I've been stressed out in my life. I've never been that stressed. Where literally blood will come through your pores. You say, I don't really get it. Why would he be like that? Because just this morning I was reading about these martyrs who were burned at the stake by the Catholic Church by believing salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. 1546, several people were burned at the stake. And they died quite bravely, frankly. One guy says to another, play the man, for today we'll light a fire in England such as never been lit before. Dying with such confidence, and yet Jesus Christ is sweating great drops of blood. And you say, how do you put that together? Here's the difference. When these martyrs died, they knew they were going to go right into the presence of the Lord, the joy of the Lord. But Jesus knew in the garden he was facing the unmitigated, undiluted wrath of God, which was poured out on him. And so he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you Now, I just want to read. I want to close up this first point so we can get to the second. I just want you to read these verses with the understanding of what I just described. Jesus, penal, he made the payment, substitutionary, took our place, atoning sacrifice, he gave his life. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken, stricken, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So much there, we don't have time, but it says he was, he was buried in, a, in what kind of grave? A rich man's grave, right? Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He had a special tomb made for him. When Jesus was crucified, he asked if he could have his body, and that fulfilled that prophecy when he buried him in his tomb. But now just look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to do what? To crush him. To crush him. That was his will. The New American Standard, the Holman Standard, the King James translates the will of the Lord to it was the Father's pleasure. Did you ever catch that? The Father's pleasure. How can that be? It wasn't that the Father took pleasure in the act. But man, it's that the Lord took pleasure in the accomplishment. It was love, in other words, that drove all of this to happen. You've heard John 3, 16, I'm sure. For God so loved. He loved the world that he gave his son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For them, it was premeditated murder. But for God, it was a predestined sacrifice. They thought they were taking Jesus' life, but in reality, Jesus was surrendering his life. And I just tell you, because of one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, one day in history 2,000 years ago where he was wounded for our transgressions, untold millions have been healed through the internet. Have you been healed? Have you turned to Jesus Christ? God took the ultimate expression of hate, crucifixion, and he made it into the ultimate expression of love. So now we wear crosses not as a symbol of shame, but as a symbol of love. This was no ultimately tragedy. It was the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's will prevailed in the crucifixion. Now we move on to how God's will prevailed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at 10b. We read this verse. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And what I say to you is that's referencing the resurrection. I'll show you that in just a minute. But the idea is success, prosper, mission accomplishment, victory. I want to show you four phrases that lay out he is talking about resurrection truth. And I want to show you that each of these four phrases have weighty pastoral implications, not just for heaven ahead, but for life right now. All right? Phrase number one. He shall see, that's Jesus, talking, he's talking about Jesus, he shall see his offspring. Do you see that? Offspring can be translated uh, seed or family. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as receive Jesus Christ, does, to them does he give the right to become the children of God. There it is. There it is. Which were born, by the way, not of blood. You don't become a Christian because mom or dad were. 
Not born of the will of the flesh. You can't work your way into God's favor. Not born in the will of another man. He can't make some kind of sign over you and declare you forgiven. But of God. To those who receive him, to them does he give the right to become the children of God. Those who believe in Jesus, in other words, become part of his seed. Do you get it? Become part of his offspring. Become part of his family. And this verse says he will see them. You see that? He will see them become his offspring. Well, in order for Jesus to see people become his offspring, he has to be what? He has to be alive. Parents might see grandchildren. In some cases, they'll see great-grandchildren. Very rarely is there anything beyond that. But this verse says Jesus will see his children everywhere, in every region, in every place, the post office included, in every generation, generation after generation after generation. He is alive to see those who come to faith in him. Now, pastoral implications. This phrase not only presumes Jesus is now alive, but it highlights something that we couldn't possibly emphasize enough in these highly divisive times. Man, I wish Anwar was here and I could bring him up and have him preach his five-minute thing again because he talked about the family motif of the, of, of the church, right? We are family. We're brought together by the blood of Christ, our elder brother. He says here, we're his offspring, family imagery. But we live in a time, and Anwar laid this out, where there is so much division going on. And one of the areas of division is in the area of ethnicity. Racism repackaged. Where the world wants you to see somebody of a certain ethnicity and think this about them, to think this about their past, and all all of that. That is so counter to this verse. And I thought of this illustration, which this one hits home to me for obvious reasons, and it does will for others here, but hopefully for all. Take a family that is multi-ethnic. I'm talking about a human family. By way of marriage, husband and wife, a way of adoption, all, all, all kinds of things. That a black father isn't going to say, oh, there's my white son. Would he? An Asian father wouldn't say, oh, there's my brown son. Would he? A black lady wouldn't say, oh, there's my Hispanic husband. My whatever brother, sister, do you get the point? You'd say, that's my brother, right? That's my sister. That's my, that's my wife. That's my husband. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's how you would think about it. How much more should we think of that in the eternal blood-bought family of God, hey? I don't, I don't look at Pastor Cleet and say, there's my white fellow pastor. I might say Amish sometimes. And then I got to check that down, okay? All right? <laughs> no. I don't say, Charles, there's, there's my brother, black pastor, and, and Nick, my brother, Asian pastor. I might think those are my pastors who need to get their heart right and start hunting like me and the other pastor, but no, I don't. I just think those are my pastors, my fellow pastors, my brothers, right? Do you get the point? It says in Hebrews of Jesus Christ, 
Wherefore, on the basis of his death, resurrection, creating a new family, he's not ashamed to call them. It doesn't say his Jewish brother, Christian brothers, or his Gentile Christian brothers. He's simply not ashamed to call them his brothers. And Ephesians 2 says, God, bam, knocked down the middle wall of partition, creating out of two men, metaphorically speaking, one new man, one new family. Let me run. I hope we get the point on that one. Very, very, very important in this season. Number two, it says, he shall prolong his days. You see that? That's just as plain as can be, right? He shall prolong his days. Jesus said that would happen, that he would live again. He said he would do that. He said, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it back up again. And I was going to have you go through several passages in the book of Acts to show you this was apostolic preaching. I don't have time. Read the book of Acts, and they will say all the time, you killed him, but God raised him. You killed him, but God raised him. And oh, by the way, God was behind it all anyway for the salvation of his people. And these prolonged days are actually forever days because according to Romans chapter 6 and verse 9, once death has been conquered, it can't rear its ugly head again. This is what it says about Jesus. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, pastoral implication. Have you ever stared, and everybody has, at the body of a dead loved one? A mother, a father, a son, a daughter, a friend? You know heart-breaking that is. You see him all made up, lifeless in a casket. They close the casket. You feel so hopeless, so heartbroken. They lower it down into a hole, back into the earth. Put a little dirt on it, dust to dust. A few closing words and people kind of quietly depart in ones and twos and threes and all the rest. You go have a little meal and you're just floored with the hopelessness of it all, right? Every year, there's a remembrance, and less and less people remember because they've got their own deaths that's close to them. But every year, it hits you. It stares you in the face. It seems so hopeless. We're reminded from this text that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of a coming resurrection. In other words, this is just for a vapor. But it's all going to change. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ rose from the dead, and then those who belong to him at his second coming. It says he must reign. He's reigning right now until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is physical death. So I think this has something to do with how I live right now and how I do with my, deal with my own heartaches. The one who prolonged his own days will one day prolong all those that are in him. You know that. Of course, when we die, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And that's glorious truth. But what I mean to say is there's a great family reunion coming. When the dead in Christ shall rise first, right, then we which you belong and remain to the Lord will be with him forever. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, comfort one another with these words. I'm comforting myself right now with these words. What about you? So not only does Jesus, is he alive to see people come to him? 
He is alive to raise our bodies just like he raised his own. Now, can I hit these last two phrases? You're never supposed to go on special holidays longer, but every day is the Lord, every Sunday is the Lord's day, so I'm going to hit these last two points, okay? Verse 11. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, remember how I said, I think he's talking about resurrection. Do you, do you see that now, based on the other two phrases? The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God's great purpose. I tell you, whether you can see it or not, whether we always believe it, we certainly don't feel it a lot, God's great and grand and ultimate purpose will be irrefutably and completely brought to fruition. It will happen. In Revelation 5, John is crying. He broke down crying because he says, who is worthy to take the scroll? You remember that passage and open its seals? Basically, the scroll is the title deed of history in the universe. And he's weeping because he doesn't think there's anybody worthy who can unfold history. And then he hears a voice, hey, John, John, you don't need to weep anymore because there is one who's worthy to open up the scroll and the seals. Remember that? And then you have this. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's conquered and overcome, and he is worthy to open up the seven seals and unfold the scroll. And there's no wonder it says in verse 9, it's so cool. This is one of those electric passages in Scripture. This just grips you. He says, behold, I saw a lamb. There's four elders or four living creatures, all these crazy heads, and then the 24 elders, perhaps angels. And he says, between them, he saw, now listen to me, he sees a lamb, a lamb standing, it's alive, as though it had been slain, crucified. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof that Ephesians 1.11 is true, that God is working all things according to the counsel of his eternal will. And that, as it said, Jesus said in John 40, all this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and trusts in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, and not one will be lost. Verse 12 adds to this imagery of victory, of accomplishing God's will in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It adds to that a military analogy. I want you to see it. Therefore, he says in verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Where do you see the military analogy? The spoil, right, with the strong. That's what you see. And when I read that, I thought, because I'm, I'm preparing for did, uh, did God Really Say Conference, my text, 2 Corinthians 2. You remember when Paul says, but thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph. Idea is triumphal uh, procession. That is a reference to what happened in Rome whenever a general won a big victory. I want to describe it to you really quickly. The idea is when there was a military battle and the Roman general prevailed with his triumphant army, there would be a massive ticker tape parade, a big like ticker tape parade on steroids, if you will, held in the streets of Rome. The victorious general would be celebrated, his triumphant army that won the victory. Streets of Rome would just flood with all of the thousands and thousands of citizens 
uh, lighting the parade route. They would actually begin to mass in the pre-dawn hours at a place called Campus Martius. And once they were all assembled, as the light was rising, they would spend hours slowly going through the city, arriving in the capital district to proclaim their victory. Up front were the statesmen and the senators. It's just like today the politicians want to get all the credit. They'd be in the front of the parade. Then you would have the trumpeteers with these big, massive brass trumps, trumpets just glistening in the sunshine. You know what came after that? The POWs, the captives, shackled in chains, prisoners of war. Along with them would be the gold that was the spoils of victory that they got from them, the armaments, the weaponry, all of that. They would be followed by a special group of soldiers whose Job, frankly, was at the end of the parade to execute the POWs and then put their wares on display. That would be followed by a, a group, a, a large contingent of priests, pagan priests, carrying these, swinging these incense things, almost like when you go to a big league game and they have all the smoke come up as they announce the starting line, that, that kind of thing. Smoke, colorful smoke, vibrant smell and all that. The smell and sound and sight of victory, they're waving these incensers. And then there was the general, I'm sure, in a souped-up chariot, right? Dressed in full regalia of purple, his face painted red, holding the scepter, servant behind him holding on a stick the halo of Jupiter over his head, his family and other cabinet members in attendance with him. And then behind him would be masses of troops, masses, the regiment of cavalry, the regiment of bowmen, the regiment of swordsmen, just boom. Massive procession. And it was saying the general was the victor, unquestionably. And I think Paul uses that reference to remind us that the ultimate general, the ultimate king, the ultimate captor is the Lord Jesus Christ. Only unlike those Roman generals who required their people to die for them, this king captures us with his own death to make us his own. Quite a script flipping right there. And I just wonder, have you ever surrendered to him? I mean, really. I'm not asking you if you pray to prayer. I'm not asking you if you can just tell me the facts of the gospel. I'm not, I'm not asking you that. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, have you surrendered? Are you still in chains? Or have you been made alive in Christ? For Paul, who referenced this very illustration, he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He was stopped dead in his tracks and made alive. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. We just sang that song. I was dead in the grave. I was covered in sin and shame. I heard mercy call my name. He rolled the stone away. Has the stone been rolled away for you? I'm very earnest about this because the Bible says it's appointed man once to die and after this the judgment. And I'm going to end right, I got, I got a whole point that talks about his, his intercession right now. If you had supersonic ears, you could hear him interceding for you because the scripture says he is able to save us to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for us. But I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to stop right here. 
Have you, have you turned to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you, do you have a genuine relationship with the living God who loved you and gave himself for you? May the law of God show us on the roller coaster of life what we really look like and then look to the one who rode that roller coaster perfectly and then died the death for us having not done so. This is the word of God. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ. Lord, I pray that this passage would blow up unnecessary division based on ethnicity and other differences that are actually there for your glory. I pray, Father, for hearts that remember loved ones but the day is coming. There's going to be quite a grand reunion. And I pray for the one, Lord, that's never truly trusted you, that today they would turn their life over to Jesus Christ. They would repent of their sin and trust in him and receive forgiveness and new life. Lord, do this and way more for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.